Acts chapter 3, this morning we are going to look at the entire chapter. I'm going to begin with verse 1, and if you'll allow me, I'm going to read uh, all through the end of the chapter, and let's ask God for His help as we study this word together today, Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him uh, him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. When you, uh, but, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong who you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, but did also your rulers, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him. In whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from his people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God Having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. 
I want to preach to you this morning on this passage under the title, The Power Belongs to the Lord. So let's pray and ask God for his help as we get into this passage this morning. Father, we do ask that as the power belongs to you, we recognize that even this morning the power to affect us is in your hands. I pray that you would move through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen us today, that you would encourage us, rebuke us, build us up through your word. I pray that I, as I preach this text, that I will preach your word and not my ideas, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are open, ready to receive what you have this morning. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 The world is an incredibly harsh place. From disease to depression, from disabilities to discouragement, from homicide to genocide, from your adversaries to abortion, from bigotry to bankruptcy, from flood to famine. The world is an incredibly harsh place. Now, because of common grace, the rain falls on the just as well as the unjust. The world is not as bad as it could be, but let's be honest, it's not as good as it could be. Maybe we could say it's not as good as it should have been. Something's off, something's wrong, something's broken in this world. Because of the brokenness, the suffering, the harshness of the, this world, atheists deduce that there must not be a God, that the harshness of the world cannot coincide with a loving God, and so therefore God does not exist. However, most folks just try to plug away and live their life and, and try to create a sense of safety, try to forget the harshness of the world try to create a sense of well-being in their own home and live their lives as, as long as they can, just simply ignoring the dumpster fire of societal brokenness. But no matter how much we ignore that dumpster fire, f- fire the brokenness will one day catch up to us. One day your life will expire Death will meet all of us. Brokenness will meet all of us. Your bed will one day become your deathbed. As my daughter so eloquently reminded me this past week, we never really save a life, she said. We only delay somebody's death. Wow, that's wise. It will catch up to us. The world is incredibly harsh. Where is true restoration to be found? I want to talk to you this morning about restoration. Where can we find restoration in this world? 
And it's not found where we typically look. It's not found in the nation because the nation is attached to this world which is quickly passing. It's not found in politics because politics are merely uh, humans' attempts at organizing society and humans are attached to this world which is quickly fading. It's not attached to uh, medicine because medicine is just merely going to prolong your life in this world until you die. It's not attached to... Uh, progress, because progress is always tainted by human sin. So where do we find true restoration in this world? That's why I'm entitling this sermon, The Power Belongs to the Lord. In Jesus' day, Rome was dominating Israel. In Jesus' day, Israel had arrived at this place in which they were longing for final restoration. And for them, in their mind, it was restoration from what? The empire of Rome. To get Rome out of our backyard. To allow us to be able to freely organize ourselves as the people of God. So when Jesus first was on the scene, there was some excitement around Jesus because they thought, oh, maybe he's the one that's going to restore us. And deliver us from Roman oppression. Well, as the story quickly goes on, we discovered in the book of Luke, the people were not quite satisfied with what Jesus was doing. And he ended up instead on a Roman cross. Now, I can only imagine that the Jews of his day heard rumors of a resurrection. They heard rumors of a small gathering of his followers meeting together in an upper room. And then on that day of Pentecost, something changes and the Holy Spirit comes and and, uh, people are speaking in different languages, proclaiming the wonders of God, and a church is birthed. Now, that leads us to our text here in chapter 3 of Acts. This is a message that is particularly for, uh, or preached to, the Jews. It's a temple message. They're in the temple. It's 3 p.m. To frame the whole message, I want to kind of go to the end of our passage. Let's start at the end today. It's kind of unusual for us, I guess. But let's look at the end of the passage. In verse 22, he quotes here Moses. At the end of Peter's sermon to the Jews in the temple, he quotes this great hero of the Jewish faith, Moses, who had led the people out of Egypt. And as he quotes Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 15, he says that Moses said, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, who shall li- uh, you shall listen to him, and whatever he tells you, it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from his people. What, what Peter is saying is this, is look, our great forefather Moses preached about this day. Did Moses preach about Jesus? The answer is yes. He's saying there aren't two peoples, the Jews and the Christians. There's not two Gospels, the Gospel for the Jews and the Gospel for the Christians. There's not even necessarily a new community. Yes, it is a new community, but it's based in very old promises. It's part of a very old religion. He goes on to say even the prophets spoke of him in the very next verse. All the prophets spoke, he says, of Jesus. 
And then he goes on in verse 25, and he hones in right on his brethren Jews, and he says, you are the sons of the prophets. You are the original recipients of the Abrahamic covenant, in which God said, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God then, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. By turning every one of you from your wickedness. Don't you hear the urgency in his message? What he's saying is is this, is brother, sister Jews, of all people in the world, you should receive this message. You should receive Jesus Christ. Because you are the original recipients of the prophets and of the covenant with Abraham. He's saying this, don't miss this opportunity for restoration. And I say with the same kind of pleading to you this morning, don't miss this opportunity for restoration. With that, let's go back to the beginning of the chapter and let's discover where true restoration is found. The power belongs to the Lord. First, we see a physical display of restoration. It's 3 p.m., and Peter and John are the two characters in our story, and they arrive at the temple. The, the gate they arrive at is called the Beautiful Gate, and there's a man that is always there at the Beautiful Gate. He's lame. He can't walk. His friends bring him there, and he asks alms of people, money, coins, Every day, he's begging for alms. As Peter and John are walking into the temple through the beautiful gate, they come across this lame man, and he asks them for alms. Peter stops, and the tension in the story begins to rise as Peter says, look at me. The man looks to Jesus. Now, I'm sorry, looks to Peter. It's interesting in verse 16... If we could skip forward in our passage here, we're told that this man who is going to be healed is healed by faith in his name. Whose faith is he talking about? Who in the story has faith? Well, when you see the healings of Jesus, Jesus always notices faith in the person that was healed. So I'm going to assume that, yes, of course, Peter has faith, but also throughout the biblical narrative, it seems as if the lame man also has faith. Now, where, you ask, do we see faith in the lame man? I think we see it in his look. Peter says, look at us. And in verse 5, he says, he fixed his attention on them. He looked to Peter. Now you say, you respond and you say, well, that's not a whole lot of faith. And I say, exactly. Isaiah tells us, look to God and be saved. You are not saved by the quality of your faith. You're saved by the quality of your Savior. By the object of your faith. 
Oh, you right now, wondering, how might I be saved? How might I find ultimate redemption? Look to God. Look to Christ. It's in the look. It's a mustard seed of faith. Back to the story. The man, the lame man looks to, to, to Peter, and he's healed. Peter, Peter says, look, I don't have any gold and silver, but what I do have, I'll give you. And he heals the man. Strength fills the man's feet and ankles, and it says he leaps. I mean, nobody teaches the man how to walk. He's never walked in his life. And I don't know if you've ever seen like a two-year-old or a three-year-old learning to use the muscles in their feet. But nobody teaches this man to walk. He's able to immediately leap, jump, praise, run, walk. He's a, I mean, God miraculously moves, not in his feet, but also in his mind. And he's completely restored to perfection. Now, I need to take a brief moment to talk on this subject of healing, because physical healing is, has become a source of confusion in our day. Should we, if we have a lame man come into this church service this morning, expect one of us to be able to go over and heal the man and see him leap to his, face, uh, to his feet. In short, my answer is no. Healing, the gift of healing, and we, we are to pray for healing, all right, that's biblical. We see that, pray for healing. But the gift of miraculous healing is a gift that's attached to the apostles. That's my short answer. A little longer answer is this. The apostles in Acts, we already saw this in Acts 2, are performing signs and wonders. Why are they performing signs and wonders, you might ask? It's because they are bringing the New Testament message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are, if you would, they're, they're speaking Scripture, and they're going to be writing Scripture. There are no recorded healings beyond the apostolic work in the New Testament, if you read through the epistles, nowhere in the epistles are pastors or church members told to heal or even taught how to heal or expected to heal or even be healed. It doesn't happen in the epistles. As a matter of fact, it's just the opposite. In the, epist in the epistles, people are sick and they're dying. So then why did God give the apostles the ability to perform these miraculous signs. Well, it's similar to Moses with the ten plagues in Egypt. Why did God give Moses the ability to perform these ten plagues in Egypt, to perform these miracles? He didn't give it to everybody. Why Moses? Well, it's because Moses was communicating a message to who? Come on, somebody, help me out. Pharaoh, thank you. You see, the miracles... We're not to make the believer's life better. They weren't given miracles just so believers are a healthy group of people. They were actually given the ability to heal and to do other miracles so that unbelievers might know that this new message that they're hearing that's coming through the apostles is indeed the Word of God. That's why. And that's why it's attached to the apostolic ministry and those closely associated with the apostolic 
ministry. So how do we know then that the New Testament is the Word of God? It's because it came with signs and wonders. God confirmed this Word through moving in time and space, and in this case, bringing healing to the lame man. Now, back to the text. We see this physical display of the power, and then Peter immediately goes into a spiritual explanation of the power, meaning uh, what does what we just saw, what does that mean for us about restoration? What is the restoration that we as a church proclaim? That's a good question, isn't it? Because I think if you take 10 Christians and say, hey, go proclaim a message of restoration to the world, you're probably going to get 10 different messages. But there's only one. What is the message of restoration that we as a church are to proclaim? Well, let's proclaim the same message that Peter proclaims. Amen? Amen. Number one, we proclaim a divine restoration. We proclaim a divine restoration. I read a story of a woman working in an umbrella factory. And she was getting laid off because they weren't producing enough umbrellas. And so she was lamenting to one of her friends, and her friend said, do you guys not have enough machines in the shop to create the umbrellas? And she said, no, it's actually the opposite problem. We have too many machines, but we don't have enough electricity to power the machines. And then she said something that's very applicable to my text today. She said, no matter how great the machinery, machines are nothing without power. You see, the people thought that Peter was the one who had the power to perform this miracle. So as Peter begins his sermon, he says, yo, don't look at us. As thousands are coming to him in the in the porch of Solomon, he says, don't, don't, look, don't look at us. What you've seen here is not due, he says, to our power and to our piety. It is not due to our power and to our piety. Meaning, the effect that any minister has has nothing to do with the power and the piety of that minister. Are you tracking with me? Restoration that we proclaim is not a man-centered restoration. The restoration that we proclaim is a divine restoration. True restoration is not found then because the preacher is passionate. It's not found in the powerful personalities of the people. True restoration is not found in community development True restoration is found in the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Quick word of application. Never glorify the minister. Never glorify the minister. If God ever uses anything I say from the pulpit here to change your life, don't give me glory. It's not due to the power and the piety that I might have. God didn't change you because John Piper was so eloquent or because Paul Washer was so passionate or because H.P. Charles was so on point or whoever your favorite preacher is. God didn't change you because Eric is such a good guy. God didn't bring restoration into your life because the Wallers are so hospitable. 
God didn't bring restoration into your life because Stephanie is such a good listener. No, don't glorify the minister. The minister never serves for his or her glory because the power is not in us. God uses us in spite of our lack of power. He uses us in spite of our weakness. He uses us in spite of our lack of piety. He uses us in spite of our moral deficiencies. It's because the power is from the Lord. Number two, we proclaim a spiritual restoration. We proclaim a divine restoration, and secondly, we proclaim a spiritual restoration. I don't want to belabor the whole healing point. But that is an important point to make, that what we're talking about is our biggest problem. And your biggest problem is not your ankles or your feet. Your biggest problem is not your aging body. Your biggest problem is not even lung cancer. Your biggest problem is sin. And we've got to proclaim a spiritual restoration. Look at verses 13 through 15 of our text. He goes on in his sermon and Peter declares, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. Look at this. Whom you delivered. Who you denied in the presence of Pilate. When he decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One. The Righteous One. And you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Look at the verbs here. You delivered. You denied. You killed. His blood is on your hands. And church, I'm looking at you. You killed the Christ. And you say, how can you say that? That was 2,000 years ago. Well, Jesus said, even if you haven't touched a woman, if you lost it in your heart, it's the same kind of sin. You may not have physically put Jesus onto the cross, but if you have rejected Christ in any part of your life, it's as if you crucified him. You've denied him. You've delivered him over. It's the same kind of sin. We are complicit in his death. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. Our sin condemns us. And, and uh, when, when we come into the presence of the Holy, I mean, what are we going to do in our sin? My wife and I were just talking about uh, a story of a man who killed his wife uh, after she found out that he had committed adultery. And we said, what would cause a man to kill his wife after he's been exposed in his adultery? And my wife, she said it, it would be his pride. And I think she's right. When we are exposed, we have one of two options. And that is embrace our pride and seek to snuff out the light that is exposing us. Or the other option is to fall on our knees in humility. But in our sin, we're not able or willing to do that. And so how can anybody then come this close to the perfect light of God and not seek to snuff out the light? That's exactly what happened when Jesus was on earth. They couldn't contain him. They couldn't be in his presence, and they tried, so they tried, to, they tried to snuff him out. And you say, well, I didn't know that. I was, I'm, I, I was ignorant in my sin. I, I uh, didn't realize what I was doing. 
Just because you're ignorant in your sin, does that mean that you're not guilty? No. Well, let's look at verse 17. He goes on to say, now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. He just said, you killed him. You're guilty. You denied him. And I know you acted in ignorance. It doesn't get them off the hook. Just because you were ignorant doesn't mean that you're not guilty. He goes on to say, well, this Jesus who you killed, God, verse 15, raised from the dead. Is resurrection good news? Dot, 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 for the sinner in his sin. If you're the one that just killed Jesus, and God raised him from the dead, is that good news? That's, that, that reminds me of like a good Michael Myers movie. Where they kill Michael Myers and he gets right back up, seeking vengeance. The only difference is this. Jesus is not Michael Myers. And he doesn't seek vengeance in that, in, that, in that way. He's not filled with hatred. He's filled with love, actually. But listen, part of God's love is God's justice. And Acts tells us that Jesus was raised to be the judge. So if you're responsible for the denial of Christ and he is raised to be the judge, how are you going to fare? It's not yet a good story. At this point, it's a horrifying story. The Jesus you killed is raised from the dead as the judge of the living and the dead. So we are now backed into a corner. Peter's listeners have been backed into a corner. Two questions come at this point. Number one, can we be forgiven of these sins? And number two, can Jesus possibly restore? Well, let me get to my third point and my last point. I'll give them to you again. Number one, we proclaim a divine restoration. Number two, we proclaim a spiritual restoration. And number three, we proclaim a total restoration. We proclaim a total restoration. Look at verse 17. He says, and now brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. He's saying, while you were acting in ignorance, God was acting in wisdom. While you didn't know what you were doing, God knew what he was doing. While you were acting in blindness, putting Jesus on the cross, God was fulfilling his eternal plan to save a people for himself, to bring total restoration. It is God's plan that Jesus died. And God, in Christ's death, fulfilled a plan to do what? Oh, our sin is vast beyond our all measure. But how deep the Father's love, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How does that happen? How can God be so wonderful to us when we were so wicked to him? Well, we see the answer to that question in the message of the cross. Jesus died in our place. He represented us before God. He is our Savior, our sacrifice, so that we might be saved. 
in verses 19 through 21. Peter then calls for his listeners to respond to this gospel message. As he calls them, he uses a couple words. Two words. He says, repent and turn back. Now there's a number of different words that the apostles seem to use in an interchangeable fashion as they call people to respond to the gospel message. Sometimes they say repent. Sometimes they say turn back. Sometimes they say believe. What do all of these words mean? You see, sometimes we confuse repentance with works. We think of repentance as behavioral modification. But if that's the case, then we're saved by works or by behavioral modification. So that's not what repent can possibly mean. Repent here means uh, not an action, but a change of mind about your current state. Let me put it into a simple analogy for you. Uh, Imagine a man is in a house that's burning down. It's in the middle of the night, and his daughter comes into his room, and she says, Daddy, the house is on fire. In that moment, he's lying in his bed, and he hears the news. And the call comes, repent. In that moment, he repents. He hasn't yet moved. He hasn't yet got out of bed. What is repentance for him? The bed no longer feels comfortable. The bed, the, 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 the comforter, the blanket, the sheets, it no longer provides a sense of security and safety like it did just a minute before. In that moment, before he's even moved, the man has changed his mind about his current state. Now he moves. Now he gets out of bed. What, what do we call that in the Bible? That's all fruit of repentance. That's the action. That's the behavioral change. But we're called here to repent, turning the diamond of faith to believe, to turn, to change your mind about your current state, about where you are. The second thing we see here is with this call comes a result. There are two results, two promises. Promise number one. He says in verse 19, do this and your sins will be blotted out. Do you guys remember when you were in elementary school and you're writing on a paper with a pencil and then you turn to use the eraser and the eraser just smudges your, uh, uh, your, your lead all over the place and you're trying your best to clean the paper and you just can't. The more you erase it, the worse it becomes. That's like a good example of us trying to deal with our own sin to the very best of our ability. We can never erase it. There's always a remnant. There's always a mark. There's always a dent on the paper. Blotted out is a word that means completely wiped away, as if the pencil never touched the paper. Completely clean. It's as if your sin never happened. Separated as far as the east is from the west. That's the forgiveness that comes in Christ. You are completely made new and God says, I will remember your sin no more. It's been blotted out. That's promise number one. 
Look to Christ, church. Turn to Christ in faith and know that now your sin is blotted out. Now, secondly, there's another promise, promise number two. Look at verses 20 and 21 and we'll close. He says also that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time, look at this, for restoring all things about which our God spoke. For restoring all things. Look, forgiveness of sins is not the end goal of the gospel. Forgiveness of sins gives you the ability now to stand in God's presence. It gives you the ability to be a recipient of the end goal. It fits you for the end goal. But the end goal of the gospel is the restoration of all things. It says Jesus is going to be held in heaven until the time he is going to come again to restore all things, to make the whole world new again. And the Bible tells us elsewhere that that means the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Christ. It means the final judgment of the wicked. It means that this world is going to be remade new and all tears are going to be wiped away and there's no more death, decay, crying, disorder because it's all been passed away. And the new order in Christ has come. We are looking forward then to the restoration of all things. Ultimate, true restoration. If you had lung cancer and you're coughing because of the cancer, no amount of, of uh, uh, cough syrup is going to help, is it? You keep taking the cough syrup to, to try to deal with the symptoms but the cough keeps coming and it gets worse and worse. What you need is for somebody to cut you open and to go deep into your system and to remove the cancer from your lungs. You see, when Jesus was on earth, he talked about Rome. But it's funny that he didn't go to war with Rome. Instead, Jesus was doing something more. Jesus was going deep into the heart of the earth. And he was dealing with Lucifer. He was dealing with destruction. He was dealing with what causes all of the problems in this world, and that is sin itself. And he crushed the head of the serpent. More than any of the restoration that anybody could have even imagined during his day. As we think of physical ailments today, oh, we get hung up by them and we wish they would go away. But Jesus' work is going deep into the heart of the problem and he's pulling out the heart of the beast. Not merely just putting band-aids on it, but he's bringing ultimate uh, restoration through his work on the cross and through one day coming again to make all things new. Are you a member, church? Are you a member of this kingdom? Are you hoping in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Are you proclaiming the restoration, the true restoration that comes from God? 
Turn to Jesus Christ. Have you ever trusted in him? Turn to Christ. Find him to be the one and only restorer. You must trust in him. And what a restorer he is. How can us, how can any of us, weak, wounded, struggling, lacking in piety, how can any of us proclaim restoration to the world around us? Well, we proclaim it in this way. The power belongs to the Lord. Amen? Father, we thank you that the power belongs to you. All of the other powers in this world bow before you, God. We bow before you and we say, God, help us to proclaim faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true message of restoration to this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.